1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is repeating the familiar words from Jesus in the upper room in Luke 22, where Jesus says this, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, when we read that, it's very difficult for us to appreciate how explosive that moment was in human history. Um, The Passover meal had been celebrated, as you remember, from the Exodus until this particular point for 1,500 years. So, So imagine the momentum that gets created by celebrating something for 1,500 years in the same way. And so here these disciples are sitting in a small room in Jerusalem, and suddenly the Passover meal comes to an abrupt end. And then it gets redefined or reshaped by Jesus. Jesus takes all the momentum, all 1,500 years of the momentum, he takes it and he says, all of this... Disciples, it all terminates on me. It all ends on me. It all finds its fulfillment in me. And then he takes these elements of this old Passover meal and establishes a new covenant. And you see some continuity. He takes the bread. He takes the wine already sitting on the table. And he says, this is my body. This is my blood. But there's no more lamb on this table. Why? Because Jesus is the lamb. And so he takes he takes the meal and he reshapes it so everything is pointing to him. And so now we come to this table and we say we, we have the blood and the body. We have the, the wine and the bread. But we don't need the lamb because the lamb now was slain on the cross. And his, his, his blood is covering us. So we now know that death will pass over us because of what Jesus has done. So the Last Supper in Luke 22 blossoms into what we call the Lord's Supper, sometimes called Eucharist, which is the Greek word meaning thanksgiving. So we give thanks and sometimes called communion, where where we're communing now with God in a unique way. And the Lord's Supper is two of the sacraments that the Protestant church celebrates And the Westminster Confession defines sacraments in this way. Signs and seals of the covenant of grace instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. So when you hear the word sacrament, it means a sign and seal of the covenant of grace instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits. The sacraments confirm our interest in Christ and put a visible difference between those who belong to the church and those who belong to the rest of the world. So they're visible. They're instituted by Christ. And they're meant to say something about him and also something about us. We're, we're putting ourselves or we're separating ourselves because we're participating in the sacraments from the rest of the world. And last week we talked about the importance of seeing the entire scope of the Old Testament history building towards uh, Jesus. The, The shadows of the Old Testament find their fulfillment 
in Christ. And you might remember my illustration uh, of that is that when you start with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God says in the curse that that the woman will uh, have a seed and that seed will come forth and he will crush Satan and in the process he will be bruised. And at that point, we begin to see little shreds of light on the horizon. So my, my, my picture was when you're reading your Bible and you get it to Genesis chapter 3, uh, 3, verse 15, imagine yourself sitting on the beach before the sun has come up. And you see little rays of light come up, but you know the little rays of light are only telling you something great is about ready to come over the horizon. And so when you read Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the Gospels, basically more and more rays begin to come up on the horizon. And then when Jesus comes up on the horizon, then you say, no, that's the sun. That's, that's what all of these rays have been pointing to, saying he is the one, which is why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus come over the hill towards him to the river Jordan, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. See, all the, the rays that we've been looking at through the Old Testament now have come up over the horizon in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament sign from Abraham of circumcision ends and is replaced by baptism. The, the initiatory rite of coming into God's family, which was circumcision in the Old Testament, is replaced by baptism. The Old Testament meal, the Passover meal, is it ends and is replaced by the Lord's Supper. And notice both of those Old Testament signs are bloody signs. Circumcision and Passover. Meaning there's going to be blood to get into the covenant. And now we know this is the blood of this new covenant. So the bloody signs are done away with in the Old Testament coming into the New Testament because they're no longer required. They've reached their final destination in Christ. And so this morning I specifically want to look a little more deeply into the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, Several years have passed when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 since the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper in Luke chapter 22. And now the Apostle Paul, these many years later, he's writing to a new church plant. He planted a church in this Greek city called Corinth. And now he's writing back and he's giving instructions on how to operate your church, how to operate this body of Christ. And really when you read the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is just sort of ticking one sort of church item off of another and saying, now in this regard you should be doing this, in this regard you should be doing this. And now he's giving particular instructions on the Lord's Supper which really began in chapter 11, verse 17. And I want to look at it in three, I want to focus on three areas. First, I want to talk about the manner in which Christ is present at the Lord's Supper. Secondly, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And third, mistakes being made at the Lord's Supper. So if it helps you to remember the manner, the meaning, and mistakes. First, let's look at verse 24. Verse 24, or let's back up. For I received from the Lord, verse 23, and also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. One church historian said these are the four most divisive words in church history. 
this is my body. These, these are the four words that in some sense divide up both uh, Protestants and Catholics and then Protestants from each other. So it's helpful for us to ask the question, when Jesus says, this is my body, what does he mean when he says, this is my body? And uh, some of you may know the Catholic view is called transubstantiation. And so what happens in this particular view when you attend a Catholic Mass, which I've done many times, and, and you should at some point to see what they do, the priest comes up to this table and he has words of institution. He has this Eucharistic prayer that he prays over the elements. And then at some points he, he holds up a, the bread and he breaks the bread, and quite often a bell rings at that particular point. And that, at that particular moment, these elements, the wine and the bread, actually become the blood and the body of Christ. They, they substantially become the body of Christ. They, they transfer into the body. And just to give you an idea of how they think about it in one of their canons, one of their um, rulings, it says this, if anyone shall deny that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, are verily, really, and substantially contained the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but shall say he is only therein as a sign or a figure or virtue, let him be anathema. So it's not a small thing. You don't say, let him be accursed. Let him be damned if you don't believe this way. So if you were to go to a Catholic service, the priest should warn you, especially if you're a Protestant, that if you don't believe that this isn't actually turning into the body and blood of Christ, then you shouldn't come forward. And so when I've gone and when I've taken my family and they do uh, the Lord's Supper. That's not what I think, so I don't come forward. And that's created this big division. That's one of the reasons, but one of the reasons is created this big division between Protestants and Catholics. Well, the Protestants obviously rejected that interpretation of verse 24. Instead, they believed that the bread and the wine symbolized the body and the blood of Christ. Much like when Jesus said, I am the door, or I am the vine, he didn't actually mean he's the door. Or he's a vine. So when he takes this and he says, this is the body and blood, he's not, he's not saying, I, it, is, it is me. He's saying it symbolizes me in some way. And you see it just even in this particular passage in verse 25 when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant. Well, the cup isn't the covenant. The cup doesn't transubstantiate trans into a covenant. It represents some, th something. It symbolizes something. And so if you're like me and you like reading church history, uh, you won't be surprised that the Protestants couldn't get together on this either. Uh, so could, not only could the Catholics and the Protestants get together, when the Protestants all got together, they thought of something different happening here as well. And so that created divisions with even in the Protestant denomination. And Luther believed in something called consubstantiation. I realize these are big words. But what he thought is that the body and blood are present here at this table, but the elements don't change. The body, the real body and blood are present, but the elements don't change. 
And honestly, because I'm not in that debate and I'm not a scholar on that particular issue, I don't see a big difference between the way the Catholics saw it and Luther saw it. So he was somewhat different. He didn't think the elements actually changed. But when you came up for communion, you were participating somehow in the real body and the blood of Christ in a unique way. Most other reformers rejected Luther's interpretation. And, of course, Luther didn't care. He rejected them out of hand. Um, Mainly because they believe that Christ is bodily present somewhere. And where is Christ bodily present right now? At the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is bodily present somewhere. And he's bodily present at the right hand of God the Father. So he couldn't also be bodily present here or a bunch of other communion tables around the world. And so what they thought that was that, uh, that Jesus here is spiritually present, not bodily present. So let's just take Matthew eighteen twenty, where two or three come together, there I am with them. When Jesus says that in Matthew 20, uh, Matthew uh, 18, does he mean that when two or three people to get together, physically I'm there? Well, no, he doesn't mean that, but you, he means it spiritually. So I would say Calvin, this was Calvin's view and other reformers' view, that when you come forward, what we're saying is Christ is spiritually present in a way, and so this is a means of grace that you really get a connection with Christ in a unique way by coming forward and having communion. But not in a physical presence, but in a spiritual presence. And then, of course, there were some other Protestant reformers who just thought it was just a remembrance or a memorial. It didn't have anything to do with Christ's presence physically or spiritually, but it's just do this in remembrance of me. So you're just simply remembering something that doesn't have any connection particularly spiritually or physically to Christ other than you're remembering something. So I would say, and Christ Community Church believes that when you come forward, there really is the spiritual presence of Christ in the table. Now, when I say that, the question I'm asking, and maybe you should be asking, and maybe you are, is do believers receive an extra or special grace by eating the Lord's Supper? And maybe this isn't the best way to say it, but this is the way I thought about it. When you come up for the Lord's Supper, is it like getting a five-hour energy shot? Of grace. I mean, you get the little tablet and you come forward and you get like sort of a, a big boost of grace. You get a, a booster shot. You get something that sort of makes you move forward. And I would say, well, no, that's, I don't think that's the way I think about it. I, I think there is a, that it is a means of grace in some way. But I also think that there's a means of grace through prayer. There's a means of grace through reading God's word. There's a means of grace from hearing the word preached. And so all of those ways that are are ways of sensing God's grace, just like this is one of those ways. But I don't think this somehow has a unique power to it in some way uh, that's uh, different than those other ways. Secondly, so that's the manner in which Christ is present. The meaning of the Lord's Supper. Now, when we talk about the meaning, it's like opening up a big treasure chest full of jewels. 
And there'd just be endless number of jewels or gems you could pick out and you talk about. But let's just take a look at a couple of the words in this particular text, because that's all the time will allow. Verse 24 and verse 25, you see this word, remember, or do this in remembrance. So when you're coming forward, there's something about remembering here that is important for Jesus and Paul to remind the folks of. And what are we, we remembering? Here's a few things. Verse 23. I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. So one thing we're remembering is that Jesus is the Lord. He's the king. He's my king. As you come forward, you're just remembering he's the Lord. He's the king. He's the one that everything is pointing towards, both from the Old Testament and now even today. Secondly, verse 23, he was betrayed. You see that on the night he was betrayed. Jesus knew he would be betrayed. And at the Last Supper, he's aware of his betrayal that particular night. He's aware of his crucifixion on the next day and that everything is going exactly according to plan. Jesus is at the Lord's, the Last Supper, turning it into the Lord's Supper, And he knows he's going to be betrayed that night, not only by his friends, but the enemies are coming in. And it's going to lead to his crucifixion. And he understands at that meal, everything is going according to plan. So at the Last Supper, things weren't falling apart. Things were coming together. And my guess is if we had been at that Last Supper, we would have thought, no, everything's falling apart. All the wheels are rolling off. Nothing is going according to plan. And I think one of the things that you do when you come forward and you remember is that Jesus is in complete control of plans coming together. And that even in your life, when you're suffering significant pain, when you're suffering significant loss, when you're suffering betrayal, you will remember that at that particular moment that all the things were coming together according to God's plan. And even in your particular pain, when it feels like all the wheels are rolling off, you can trust that God is saying, I've got you. Everything is going according to my plan. Now, it may not be going according to your plan, but I'm in complete control even in this moment that may seem chaotic in your life. Third thing, we give thanks. Verse 24, the word Eucharist. He was betrayed. He took the bread. He gave thanks. Jesus, right before his betrayal and crucifixion, is giving thanks to the God who's going to bruise and break. I wonder if that's your natural reaction. Right before you're bruising and breaking, you just want to be thankful. God, I see it coming. I see my brokenness on the horizon. I see your bruising on the horizon. I just want to say thank you. No, I want to say, let that go by. I'm not interested in that. But the first thing we do is remember that that Jesus took that freight train so that we wouldn't have to take it. And secondly, we know that when all the wheels are rolling rolling off in our life, 
that at that particular moment, you and I should be able to say, thank you. In everything, what does the Bible say? Give thanks. And so here Jesus is at this particular difficult moment, he's giving thanks. And imagine what the disciples would remember sort of after the fact. Days later, he's saying, do you remember that right before we all betrayed him, right before his crucifixion, he's thanking God? What a powerful witness that must have been. What a powerful witness it would be for people in your life. If they see you going through a difficult time, and that's the time you're most thankful. Not most complaining. Third, fourth thing we remember, verse 24, that he broke the bread. Verse 24, when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. You notice Judas didn't break it. Peter didn't break it. The Roman soldiers didn't break the bread. Jesus broke the bread. And you reflect back on John chapter 10 when Jesus says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. Who talks like this? Who says, I have the authority to lay myself down and I have the authority to get myself back up? Only somebody like Jesus. He's saying, I'm breaking myself for you and then I'm going to be resurrected. And so we remember that Jesus was broken on our behalf so that we wouldn't be broken and that he has the power of resurrection as well. Second thing that we uh, do here in terms of the meaning One is that we remember, and then look at verse 26. We proclaim. We're proclaiming something when we come up for the Lord's Supper. And the word in the Greek means messenger. So when we have the Lord's Supper, we have sort of like a visual messenger. It's sending a message. It's sending a message to everybody that's here and to the rest of the world that that something has happened. Somebody has given themselves on, on our behalf. Jesus has come, and he has taken what was deserved for us and given us grace and peace. So the the elements are sending the message. But when you come forward, you're sending the message. Communion isn't just about the elements sending the message. When you come forward, you're sending the message. You're sending the message to say to, to yourself to the people that you're with, to everybody in this room, to other people that could be watching to say, hey, when I come forward, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm sending everyone that message. You can count on me to be the same person in here as out there. I'm sending you that message. I don't know if you remember, uh, several of you, weren't, uh, many of you weren't here, but we went through the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, got to this very powerful moment. And what was happening for Jeremiah, Jeremiah was called to be a preacher to people who mostly lived in hypocrisy. In sort of a spiraling downward culture. And so the best sermon Jeremiah ever got and the best reception he ever got from his sermon was his very first sermon and then it just went downhill how'd you like to have that assignment 
The best you're going to be liked is your first sermon, and then you're just going to be liked less and less every time you get up and speak until you get killed in the end. That's Jeremiah's life. How would you like to volunteer for that? Well, in Jeremiah chapter 7, there's such hypocrisy that God says, Jeremiah, I, instead, when people are coming to the temple, instead of them letting co- them come in, I want you to take your pulpit and I want you to put it at the front door and I want you to look at the people and say, the Lord sees you. You're coming in saying, oh, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. But I want you them to know that I see who they are. And he says this in in that particular chapter. They're, They're coming forward and he says, Jeremiah, on the day of worship, when all the people come streaming into the temple, take the pulpit, meet them at the front door and say to them, I see that you're stealing, you're murdering, you're committed adultery, you're lying, you're following after other gods. And then you come before me in this house and you stand and you say, well, we believe in the Lord. But say, I've been watching you, declares the Lord. You're not safe as you come in. Wow, what a sermon. What if you came this morning at 1030 and the pulpit was at the front of the door? And I was standing there and says, hey, God's been watching you all week long. Don't come in here and think you're safe. If if you're going to live differently in here than you are out here, you're not safe. I've been watching. If you don't think the Lord hasn't been watching, then you're in trouble. And really, that's the same thing Paul is saying in this particular text. What's happened to some of the people who have come forward in Corinth? They've gotten sick, and some of them have died. Wow. See, the Lord is watching. He's not looking for perfect people to come to the table because then nobody would come forward. So we can be relieved. But he is looking for people who are saying, I'm attempting to live in here and proclaim in here the same thing I'm attempting to live and proclaim out there. And if that's not your intent, then you need to, according to the text, examine your life carefully before you come forward. It's a pretty powerful message that Jeremiah and Paul are sending together in terms of a warning. He says in verse 27, you're profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. So we need to examine ourselves, and that leads to this mistake, verses 27 through 30. See, he's talking about this. Let's read this together. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so that he eats and drinks the cup. Before he eats, the drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why some of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So we can make the mistake of coming forward in a way that's not representative of our lives. We need to examine ourselves. But the other mistake that Paul is particularly addressing in this context is the mistake that people were coming forward and it didn't matter how they treat one another. 
That's the particular mistake he's addressing. See, when you come forward, you're not just coming forward individually. You're coming forward corporately. And it matters how you treat each other. And what was happening in the context of Corinth is that some people thought they were better than other people. Imagine that in a church. And it happened to be, in this case, the people who were at the top of the financial food chain, they thought they were better than the people at the bottom. And they were humiliating the people who had nothing. And yet, then they would come forward. And so, in coming forward, they were actually stepping on each other to get to the Lord's table. And so, here we have the Lord's table, where this, the King of Kings, steps down to get underneath people. You're using to step on people to get to Him. See how odd that is? And so when we come forward, what we have to remember is that we're coming forward corporately. And yes, it does matter how you live your life in here and out there, and you should examine yourself. But it matters how you treat you. When you come forward, you're coming forward, and the people that are coming forward, they're, they're your pilgrims. They're on this journey with you. And they all look different, and they have different ages, and they have different skill sets, and all that sort of stuff. But God's put you here at Christ Community Church, and He's put the other people around you here to say, this is the group that's going to help you get home. And you can't step on them in order to get home. You can come alongside them. You can encourage them. You can't look down on somebody because they're a different status in some way of the world. Now you can come alongside. It just works out that the way we do communion is you, the people on the right have to come down with the people on the left. I'm not saying you're different than, it's just, you know what I'm saying. You're coming together. And you, you may not know each other's name, but you're doing it to say, hey, we're walking together on this road. This, today we're together on this road, and I want to help you get to Christ. I don't want to step on you. I don't want to use you. I don't want to look down on you. I, I can't do that because Jesus didn't look down. He stepped down, so I couldn't do that. But I come forward with my brothers and sisters saying, thank you for helping me get to him. And how can I help you get to him? So when we're having communion, we're not just coming forward having communion with the Lord. We're having communion with each other. So that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus sits there and he looks at this group of men. And he, he says, let's have communion. Let's have a meal together. You with me and you with each other. And the reason it's going to last into eternity and when... The last trumpet is sounded. There's going to be a great wedding feast where every tribe and tongue is around the same thing. It's because my body is going to be broken for you. Someone who had nothing. I gave everything. And I'm making a new covenant. I'm making these promises that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to my father. I'm building a place for you. I will come back.